Hello, aloha everybody. Hope everybody's having a lovely Tuesday evening. I'm joined by a very special guest to Big Talk Little Talk, Kim Iverson of The Kim Iverson Show. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm great. No problem. No problem. Great to have you on here. So we kind of got into it uh, just before we started the live stream. But, you know, everybody kind of knows where to find you. So if people uh, want to check out uh, Kim Iverson, follow her. I have your Instagram up on the screen. Okay. Uh, I think that's kind of your, your go-to there as far as yeah. social media. Yeah. Because Twitter can get very toxic. Believe I know. Me. And I, I know. I'm the worst at Twitter. I just, you know, even my friends and family, they ask me not to text them. Because when I text, I sound much more aggressive, I guess, than <laughs> than, I, than if, if people were to call me and have a conversation with me or obviously on my show. For whatever reason, my writing style seems to be highly uh, aggressive. And yeah, very authoritarian. Is, I guess, you know, and this is a problem that I have even in my personal life. You know, people mm -hmm. on my past radio show, my producers would never text me because they learned that when I would text back, I would sound like I was mad at them. And so, and then when they'd call me, I was like really calm and having a nice conversation with them. And so they would all, they all swore off texting and emailing me uh, and said conversation was the only way to go. And that's how everybody in my life, they, in my personal life, my professional life, people do not email or text. So wow. Twitter's not, you know, so I should learn from that, Yeah. that I should stay off Twitter because I sound like a crazy person. That's I, you what know. emojis, that's why they make emojis, you know, so you can let people know, hey, I'm, I'm just kidding or whatever. But even but, when I'm not kidding, I guess yeah. it's just the way I write my sentences. I don't know what it is, but I, you know, I'm not good in the written right. form, apparently, when it comes to small, uh, you know, I can, if I wrote an essay, that's one thing, because you can really elaborate and have, you know, long drawn out uh, ideas. True. But when it comes to tweets and emails uh, or texting, I'm not the person. Believe me, I've had that problem too. I, I'm more of a social person, so... You know, I guess I, I've, I've gotten used to it, fixed those mistakes as I go along in conversations. But yes, uh, your channel is linked down in the description, too. So if people want to go check out your show, a lot of my my fans, they follow your stuff, my audience um, very closely. So, all right, I figured we could get started. So I know, you know, you you've really kind of become somewhat of a, a journalist yourself. And that's kind of the first topic that I wanted to bring up. Because in recent, you know, in recent uh, weeks and days, uh, there was an interesting spat. And obviously, this journalism problem goes back a long time. But, you know, as people are seeing here on the screen, um, Lee Fang got into a heated situation when he put out this post of an African-American gentleman discussing some of the issues he's had with Black Lives Matter or what the uh, protests mean to him. And, you know, his colleagues like this lady at Lee Lacey, I don't want to even try to pronounce her name. She went after her own colleague, which is interesting because Lee Fang has done a lot of great work. I mean, the, the, the man has done some interesting work. He's been on Democracy Now. He's been on with so many people, part of The Intercept. The other big issue was the whole Tom Cotton situation where the New York Times had posted an op-ed. By the way, New York Times op-ed, that's an opinion piece. And Michael Tracy went out of his way to kind of point this out to people, but he got backlashed. He's been covering different perspectives on COVID, different perspectives on the protest, how you know people are upset about their communities being burnt down. I know Kim, you've been kind of on the forefront of that as well. So a lot, a lot of crazy stuff. I just kind of want to start off by getting your takes on, you know, journalism today. What do you think that? Uh, we have more problems than we used to before the age of, you know, social media and all of that. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, journalism has become, um, I, I think the big problem for journalism and news in general was the advent of the internet. And even though that's a good thing, you know, there's obviously been a lot of benefits to the internet. So I'm not saying, oh, we shouldn't have it. Absolutely, we should. But it created a, it created a, a, a problem that has, uh, has been a real issue for, for the establishment media. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that it costs a lot of money to run a publication like LA Times or New York Times or Washington Post or uh, CNN or you know any of these news organizations or ABC News, it costs a lot of money because you have a lot of stories to cover. You have to have a lot of people on the ground. Um, you know, it's just a, if you really want to deliver people news, comprehensive news that spans and you're getting every story and everything that's going on out there, it's a huge, a huge amount of infrastructure that you need in order to do that. That costs money. So suddenly when people, even like myself, are able to kind of come up on the scene and, uh, and, and produce things for a lot less because I'm one person and people are able to consume, suddenly they're competing with way more than they were ever competing with before. And I came out of radio and radio had the same problem where radio tried to figure out how do we evolve with the internet because, you know, it used to be where you just turn on the radio and that's where you got your music. But then suddenly... There were these digital online ways to get your music and you no longer really needed to go to the radio to get it anymore. And so so these old establishment heritage um, media types are trying to figure out they're scrambling for how do we tap in and compete with this new digital age. And unfortunately for the news business, that has created clickbait and right. and people are. Um, because anybody could put out anything at this point, which is, again, good and bad. Um, it, it's just created this whole, you know, they have to compete with the clickbait headlines of amateurs or, you know, people like myself who are independent. And and so then they, they kind of fall into this trap of just emotionally baiting people into content and then emotionally keeping people there. And so that's why the media has become more and more partisan because they figured out what their audiences want on an emotional level. And now they're just spoon feeding that them that, you know, they're just here. Okay, here, you're on the left. So we're just going to give you more of that, more of that. And any opinion that's counter to that, that's going to turn you off, that's going to make you, um, you know, the cancel culture of say, oh, I'm no longer even going to read your publication anymore. How dare you platform these people? How dare you put this idea out there? they know yeah. now to avoid that. And so they've just become hyper-partisan and, and really journalism, true journalism, I think is dead. I tend to agree with you. Um, and one of the big problems too is that symbiotic relationship between new media and legacy media where, you know, as much as new media has influenced legacy media, I think new media is still tied to legacy media. A lot of the work that new media, I throw myself in here, we do is just covering you know, the, the rights that legacy media does or the wrongs and kind of, uh, you know, tr uh, running in that same circle, covering the same stuff they're covering, not stepping outside and doing, you know, our own journalistic research, our own kind of investigative journalism. And it's because what you said, it's one man operation or sometimes it's a small team of two, three, maybe four people who are running these new media outlets. Um, an interesting thing that that I've seen, too, outside of just the clickbait is journalists competing against each other within their own organization. Lee Fang, you know, doing this piece and, and coming out and saying, this is my perspective. I'm going to cover this this way. You know, her, his own colleagues going after him. That was something new to me. And I think a shift in, in this journalism 
you know, market that kind of worries me. And it also mm -hmm. surprised me because I never thought, you know, you, we saw a clip of him being on uh, Democracy Now!, and these journalists, these independent media folks, nobody's coming to his side, right? Because they're, they all fear the backlash in this case from the left, from their kind of left media or, right. you know, somewhat progressive, progressive, you know, whatever you want to call it from those folks, because that's their bread and butter. That's where they get their money from. And I think to a large extent, having more competition and more voices, it does help. But can you speak to your your situation and, and the things you've encountered recently with these protests and, and your covering of them and so, some of the backlash that you received? Because in the case of Michael Tracy, from what I've seen, you know, that arc of his story, it, it's kind of been a case of we, we don't want to hear that. Don't don't tell us that right now. We're, we're focusing in on this. And if you're not on board, then you're my enemy. You're canceled, which goes to the cancel culture. Can you just right. address kind of that situation? Yeah, you know, um, I just plow forward. <laughs> so, you know, I, I understand that a lot of my viewpoints are going to upset um, certain segments of my audience, and I just plow forward. I can't think about their feelings when I'm putting out pieces and when I'm when I'm researching and coming up with what I see are the facts or uh, into or or even my own interpretation of the facts. You know, I can't think about the cancel culture. I've been also very careful. Uh, to not build an audience that is pre predominantly on the left that tends to be the types of people that engage in cancel culture. Mm -hmm. So I, I spotted that problem really early on in launching my channel and pretty much early on said things in the first you know handful of videos that I knew would be counter to the mainstream left narrative because I was trying to specifically filter my audience a little bit. Mm -hmm. What I didn't want to do and what I think so many do is, um, and some do it legitimately because they have all those views and then one day they don't have a view that's in line and suddenly they're kind of, um, you know, then they're canceled. Right. But others, they do it, you know, they continue to feed the frenzy on in, in one side of the, uh, on one side of the aisle and they do that for the clicks. They do that for the reads. They do that because... They like going viral. You know, they like the pat on the back. They like the notoriety that they get with that. And they get addicted to that. And then one day when they do decide to take a contrarian, or even if they don't realize they are, they accidentally say something, right? I mean, it could be on accident completely. It's just misinterpreted. Suddenly they're canceled. And that to me is such a problem on that side of the aisle that I have been really really conscious of this and right. in trying to not build that audience to say things that I know that I believe I'm not saying anything I don't believe ever, but um, not being afraid to put those contrarian viewpoints out there that I know are going to maybe upset that segment, because I'd rather upset them early and have and let them know what they're getting. Then yeah, I think that's build this whole correct. thing. Yeah, it, you know, because I don't want the cancel culture audience. I really don't. Because if I build an audience on that, one day you will get canceled. You will eventually say something. It's inevitable right. that will upset them. Yeah, it puts like this ticking time bomb on you right. that you're always, you know, weary of. Um, one of the things that I find interesting is that, you know, people don't understand this hasn't just erupted out of nowhere. This came from a long history with journalism and media from what I've looked into. For one, you had the consolidation, which basically made it a WWE fight because you had you know, CNN, MSNBC, and these kind of legacy uh, giants that we see today consolidate to the point where now it's blue versus red. Who, you know, these group of 
outlets represent the Democrats, their viewpoints, and Fox News, and I guess you can throw Breitbart and some other folks represent the right wing. And, you know, the billionaires, the elites have taken their sides and they perpetuate this situation. And I think I'm interested to get your take on this. Do you think that uh, new media, kind of, you know, uh, YouTube media and, and so on, have adopted this 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 uh, unfortunate, you know, uh, problem? Because I, I see that on, on new media, too, is that, you know, you, you, you pick these sides and, and they kind of emulate that from legacy media to where, like, legacy media with this recent situation with COVID to protest, you see the clear hypocrisy there. Right. right. You see the right. hypocrisy of shift there where it was uh, overnight. It's just like, boom, we're now all taking to the streets and it's just, OK. And that's OK. Yeah. So they're bending over backwards to justify it. And that's not like when we say that we're not saying that the, the deaths from covid were illegitimate, at least personally, I don't think so. But, yeah. Do you think that, you know, new media has to be careful? Uh, oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And they, right. Yeah. You know, because the thing is, is that we're all still trying to get a paycheck. You know, those of us that do it full time, we have to get paid. We have to pay our bills. We have to eat, you know, so we have to make money. And the, you know, and um, you have to grow to a point where you where you need to hire help. There's just really no way to effectively do a show like this by yourself. I mean, I have been (laughs) I still do it alone. But I, you know, I, I am getting to a point now where I'm like, I just can't keep doing this by myself. I've got to hire somebody. You know, I can't continue on like this. And then that means I've got somebody that I've got to pay. And that puts more stress and pressure on me to get the views, right? right. So uh, I think a lot of new media, they don't want to piss off their audience too much. They don't want to end up seeing those subscriber numbers go down. They don't they don't like that ebb and flow. And I, I kind of had to get used to that early on because, again, I would put out video that people would hate. And, you know, my, my show grew really rapidly and I would have, you know, 5,000 subscribers in one day. And then suddenly I'd put out a video and I'd lose 3,000 subscribers, you know, the next right. day. Yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of have to just, what I had to say to myself was, I'm just not going to pay attention to that. I can't, I have to just plow forward. And eventually, you know, a lot of times people come around and they say, you know what, I wasn't with you on that, but now I agree. Now I see what you're saying and I agree with you on that. Uh, and I now I've resubscribed, right? So people do that. And I think that's a big problem too with kind of uh, where we're at politically, right? So divisive. I mean, politics has always been kind of a divisive field to get into, but I think just the hyper partisanship that has uh, evolved over the last two or three decades has really hurt uh, content creators as well because you know you have to you want to monetize, you don't want to get. Uh, the you're always fighting with YouTube for that green dollar sign. You're always oh yeah, and so, you know, and then they're also exactly, and they're so difficult too. I mean, one third of my videos get demonetized on YouTube, and again, I just don't pay attention to that. I don't pay attention to it. I've just chosen to go to just not pay attention to anything. <laughs> so I wanted uh, to talk about maybe some solutions. I know. Like, you know, state media isn't perfect, but, you know, people have talked to me about the the fact that sometimes state media is oftentimes less partisan and represents views better, does better research. Uh, can you speak to that before we move on? Yeah, you know, it is it is a tough situation. You know, how do we go forward uh, improving and just fixing the current situation? I do think our tax dollars going towards media might be the solution to at least to swing the pendulum back 
from where it's at right now. Uh, I don't know if that would be the solution forever. You know, I think things are kind of ebb and flow and we have a solution. It's not a forever solution. It might be the solution for the next 20 years. And then we find that citizen funded taxpayer dollar funded media is too, you know, uh, rubbing elbows too much with the government and never critical of the government. So then we have to kind of swing in the other direction. And I think it's going to be a constant swing back and forth. Um, and we just have to continue to manage it. But I think what we need to do as people right now is say, the media right now is shit. I mean, pure shit. And we just cannot continue on like this. We cannot continue on turning on the news. And it's so hyperpartisan. It isn't news. You know, it isn't news at all. Um, so yeah, we have a, a less favorable approval than Congress. Oh, which is hard. I mean, Congress <laughs> is so ineffective. I mean, it's the worst branch of government. They get nothing done. All they do is take bribes and and then uh, create, you know, they, they just throw mud at each other. It's just yeah. such a shit show Congress is. And so is the news media. And the thing that is, and of course, usually the most fair media is always the media that has their person in power at that point. They have a tendency to be a little bit more fair. I've noticed this. So this is when... Um, for example, you know, the, one of the first, obviously, in the independent media space was the Young Turks, right? Uh, have a lot of respect for what they built, really used to watch them a lot. When Obama was president, I thought the Young Turks were great because it was their side of the aisle in office and they were more critical of him, plus they were critical of the other side. So they, they were more fair, I feel like, than they ever were when Obama was in office. That's and interestingly, point. I noticed this with Fox News. I feel like when I watch the mainstream media channels, Fox News is the most fair. And it's like, you know, when did that happen? I mean, I, at night, once Hannity comes on, I'm like, okay, wait, it's a crazy person. <laughs> but prior to that, you know, during the day, I feel like Fox is the most fair out of the mainstream news organizations because their guys in office. They've got to be somewhat critical of him, plus they're critical of the left. You know, whereas... CNN now and even the Young Turks now and MSNBC, they've gone crazy. They're just der Trump derangement syndrome completely, 100 percent. And that's it. Yeah. And I think you're right about that. You know, um, TYT, it, it contributed a lot to people who are now into politics. You know, people just kind of they, they'll admit it to me, too. They'll be like, I started watching them. They got me involved. But then they took that, you know, crazy turn. Right. And became kind of. Trump derangement syndrome. And I think people, uh, the reason they backlash is because they know that CNN and MSNBC and the legacy media, they're all on that bandwagon. Yeah. So the fact that TY, not to mention they took some money, there's a lot of problems there. But, but um, you know, when you look at Fox when Obama was in office, Fox was, they were crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah, they, so they it also just seems, went that crazy path. Yeah. So it just seems like if the opposite team is in power, then people just get deranged. They just go crazy. They just don't know how to handle it. And uh, so it just seems like the only balanced perspective you might get, and you even still have to pay attention to the bias. Obviously, Fox has a bias, and I'm aware of that bias. But I find when I watch their coverage, it's less biased than when I watch CNN or MSNBC or the Young Turks even right now. Yeah, like Tucker Carlson's show. You know, I find myself agreeing sometimes with some, some of the things that Tucker Carlson says. Yeah, isn't then, that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. And then, well, I mean, what contributes to that is people like, just going after these uh, personalities and saying, you know, making these jumps uh, of saying, oh, well, Tucker Carlson said X, Y, and Z. So that must mean he's a white supremacist. You right. Know? Exactly. Or exactly. on the other side, Jimmy Dore goes on this rant, talks about this. So he's like a secret right winger. So it's like, yeah, you can never win. And I think, you know, just to 
to end on a good note, people just need to find sources that they feel like they trust, they can trust over time and, and, and get perspectives from all sides. I try to do that, you know, right wing commentators, left wing commentators, and sort of get the, the big picture and, and get where everyone's coming from so that I can better come to my own conclusions. And even those conclusions sometimes may shift and people just need to, we need all need to be more understanding about that. <laughs> yeah. I know absolutely. it's hard right now, but yeah. Well, I and that's the other thing. You're not allowed to ever change, you know, whatever your true. viewpoint was 30 years ago, that must be your viewpoint today. Yeah. Um, yeah. People aren't allowed to evolve. They're not allowed to like things that are on the other side. I mean, I also agree with Tucker Carlson quite a bit. I don't agree with him on immigration things. Typically, most of his immigration stances, I don't agree with. But the rest of his a lot of his other stances, I, I tend to sit there and go, you know, OK, you know, I, I kind of agree with this guy. Yeah. And that is big for me to say, because Tucker Carlson on my list of people I could not stand was maybe second on that list. It was like Mitch McConnell and then Tucker Carlson. So he's improved on your list. <laughs> yeah, now he's somebody I actually watch. Well, you know, I what's mean, funny is uh, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I really agreed with your take on immigration. I think you did it a couple, like maybe a, a while ago, right? When the immigration thing was kind of national discussion, but about like self, you know, these immigrants kind of self-deporting. Like, self I don't yeah. want to use like a, a bad term, but like, yeah, that was a very great video. I think I might have covered that. But yeah, I thought it was like excellent. I had never thought of it from that perspective. Just like, you know, it's a supply and demand situation, just like the drug war. And if people keep uh, supplying the jobs, oh, yeah, yeah, right, the jobs, there's going to be that demand of immigrants coming in and filling them. Uh, yeah. So go after the business owners. Like if we want to solve immigration, go after the the people that are hiring exactly. undocumented yeah, that was, people. That was excellent. I do, I do want to kind of shift topics here. I wanted to kind of talk about, and people can see it on the screen here, the rioting, the protesting, everything that kind of, uh, you know, went off the rails recently. Because like I had said, it all started kind of with everybody in agreement, but then you had all this happen. And, you know, people started covering local community people and talking to them. And even them, you know, I mean, black people are very conservative from my experience. And all of this rioting, all this looting brought the military involved. They got, you know, the police more anxious because now the military are coming involved. They're looking bad. And, you know, I think, Kim, you you even covered this in extent. And I, I kind of saw a, some clips of that. But um, why don't you give us your perspective on that? I know you had gotten a lot of backlash over this on Twitter. But how, how do riots and looting hurt a cause or uh, hurt, you know, the, the the light being shunned on something that needs to be shunned on? Well, you know, for what was going on with these protests, I really saw, um, I think that this was really just kind of like the perfect storm of ingredients that created this mass uprising. And it wasn't just the the murder of George Floyd, but it was also the pandemic and people being sheltered inside for weeks, months and losing their jobs. And now there was a, an article that came out today in the Wall Street Journal saying that um, actually jobs for black Americans have been hit the hardest. So they're going to be the, the most difficult. It's going to be the hardest demographic to rise back up from this pandemic. And, you know, so all of this combined really created these these protests that to me weren't I mean, of course, they were about George Floyd. We've been seeing these the police brutality over and over and over again. Um, but on top of it, I think a lot of people just were ready to go outside. And this was a, a good cause that made them feel better about 
going outside and risking lives, right? Because for the longest time, the same, the very same people that that were out there marching were saying, "You're going to kill us if you go outside. Warren, How dare Kamala you?" Kamala Harris, the these folks, the liberals. Well, even and just even my neighbors, too. you know, just my neighbors, right? My neighbors right. that were like, oh, my gosh, you know, how dare you? You know, we can't risk lives. We can't, you know, you're going to kill somebody. And and that's on you. If you right. do this, you need to stay home. And your job isn't, you know, if you say, oh, well, people might lose their jobs. People might not get their early cancer detected. You know, I've been saying all along, this pandemic has some serious ramifications that we need to be really thinking about. And that, you know, I, I personally thought sheltering in place was and will be it will shed light on the fact it was just a terrible idea that there we needed to have a different solution to this. But causing people to go into economic turmoil, causing, uh, you know, just the 2008 crash alone, that economic crash alone where people weren't sheltering in place, but they were losing their jobs from 2009 to 2010. Uh, World Health officials found that there were 500,000 needless cancer deaths that one year alone because of people not being able to afford early detection and early treatment. Yeah, and it took like a decade to recover from the 2008 crisis. Which I we never really imagine, did. Yeah, what this pandemic ha will do to us, what you know, all of this uh, unrest will do to us. But right. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the COVID situation because I know you've been on the forefront of this, kind of taking the contrarian position, which you know, um, I think uh, a lot of us can appreciate. But... You know, you had made some 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 claims about, you know, the weather impacts on it when when it's yeah. like hotter or, or stuff like that. You you follow this closely. Can you just kind of sum, summarize for us? Do, do you think that, you know, it would have been worse uh, had we not shut down for as long as we did? Or do you think that it was over exaggerated and maybe it became political? I think it was over exaggerated and it became political. That's what I think. I do think that. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much worse it would have been had we just left our doors open. In fact, I don't know if it would have been worse at all. Um, what we are finding is that areas of the world where they sh they started sheltering in place. So we see Brazil is starting to have a problem. Now, by the way, the news media is saying, oh, Brazil's having this horrible, horrible problem. But actually, when you look at the numbers, they're still very much on the low side. You know, you've got New York, for example, that had per million, they had 1,200 deaths per million. And Brazil is still in the hundreds. Okay, so they're not anywhere near uh, levels of like, oh my gosh, they're having a serious crisis down there. But one thing that's very interesting about Brazil was that the area that's hit the hardest, Sao Paulo, that area, they actually shut down back in March. They were sheltering in place early and they were criticized for sheltering in place. But they said, no, 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 no. What we've got to do is shelter in place. We've got to shelter in place and shut everything down. So they disregarded Bolsonaro and they went and they shut down. And and then they ended up being the hardest hit area. And I think we need to start asking some serious questions about the ramifications of shutting down. When people are indoors, in circulating air, in poorly ventilated buildings, what do you think is going to happen? You know, they're circulating sick air. Whereas countries that didn't really do lockdowns or their building structures are very different. You know, like Vietnam, for example, is a country that has yeah, a lot of natural that. ventilation, right? So they didn't really have any COVID deaths. They have a lot of humidity and heat. But they also, when they did decide to shelter in place and go indoors, they don't really like close their windows and go inside. That's not the way it works there. They have to you keep think things that open. that really had a lot of impact, like, like just the ventilation, the humidity? Absolutely, the, yeah. These kind of weather factors? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in China... When I was researching it further, I hadn't done a video on this, but um, 
in China, what was really interesting was back in February when they were going through the pandemic and they shut down, they immediately mandated all of their big buildings to start doing serious ventilation and to start disinfecting the ventilation systems. That is something we're not even talking about here in this country at all. And in China, they mandated that all of their buildings worked on the ventilation. They were like, the sick air is what's circulating. We don't want people to get sick when they're indoors. So they said, we're going to have to do some serious overhaul of the ventilation and disinfecting of the ventilation systems. And, and, and they said, put the ventilation up to maximum. We want natural ventilation as much as possible. We want fresh air in and toxic air out. That is not something we're talking about in this country at all. So we wonder why China was able to control it as well as they did. And it's because I feel like they were a little bit smarter and how they handled the the pandemic, you know, and they didn't yeah, shut down like everywhere. The, the, the way that pe- the countries responded, right, is kind of that difference of response. Whereas here in the United States, I do think it became so political that it made it impossible. And it once again, you know, put it in the lens of the Democrats versus the Republicans as every issue whenever it comes right, up develops. Right. And then that kind of grinds everything to a halt and makes the result worse. Whereas other right. countries, I don't know to what extent that contributed, but I, I doubt it's as, you know, polarizing as it is here to the point where it chokeholds any kind of re, um, measures or any kind of response to, to be implemented because it has to go through all of those kind of pipelines. Um, yeah, we just weren't able to. the business to... community, right? Our business community right. also kind of failed us. Right. Well, and it's just, I think it's, we just weren't, we just were not prepared for a shutdown. And I think there were a lot of other countries that were not really well prepared for that sort of scale of shutdown. Some countries it worked well in, like in Wuhan, China, it worked well. Um, in the Scandinavian countries that decided to shut down, it worked out for them as well. But for other countries, it didn't seem to work at all. I mean, what did it do for New York? You know, nothing. What is it doing for Brazil, Sao Paulo? Nothing. What did it do? You know, there's, we've got to kind of take a look at that and say, you know, what is it really that is causing this virus to spread? We know it's the, if if it's indoors circulating around in 70 degree, low humidity air, it's going to spread. Now we know this, but right. why are we not talking about this? You know, why are we not encouraging people to go outside more, be outside, be in the sunshine, be in the fresh air where you have very low chance of catching this virus? And that's what, and that seems to be the, I don't want to say excuse, but that seems to be the justification a lot of, you know, white coats for black lives like these folks are, are are saying, are talking about is, well, exactly what you said, you know, being outside and all of this, it mitigates those kind of that, that spreading right. uh, and that contamination. But just to just to push back a little bit, I, I feel like, you know, it, it may be a place of privilege for us to speak of like, you know, uh, of this situation, how we are now, considering how far we are now, like 12 weeks now later, right? Uh, these people, these protests started going outside and stuff like that. Uh, had this been in March, do you think our politicians would have been more like against it? More like cautious had this happened in March? <laughs> Good question. Good question. I mean, I, what I know is that in April, when the people were protesting the lockdown, you know, they yeah, were painted yeah, on television. Oh, Trump supporters, look at these right wing conservatives and look, they're killing us all. How dare they go out there and protest the lockdowns and kill us? Mm-hmm. That was back in April. And did we ever hear, by the way, any sort of news stories of all those protesters got sick and went home and killed people? You know, it just right. didn't happen. Same thing with the spring breakers in Florida. Remember that? Oh, the spring right. breakers in Florida. Look right. at how irresponsible they are. Right. Yeah. We didn't see the spike. 
There was one case that they, oh, it was in the news, this one group of spring breakers ended up getting sick. Well, when you read further into the news, you find out that that group of spring breakers were staying in the same hotel room together. Mm-hmm. So it was more likely that they caught it while they were sleeping in the same room, circulating the air as they're all breathing heavy at night, you know? Right. Um, so, but it wasn't other spring breakers that ended up getting it on the beach from all these other spring breakers. That's not what happened. That's um, true. Because there's like, like you said, there's, there's already cases that happened late March, April, where we saw the responses of politicians and doctors and medical professionals to that, uh, versus, you know, May right now. Uh, and yeah, so suddenly I, I think, they're like, oh, well. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what I'm saying is that I don't dismiss that, you know, this virus was serious, but don't lock people down without a measured response. Giving us $1,200 wasn't going to keep us from becoming anxious, from becoming paranoid, from becoming just deprived of social connection of, you know, worry, because how are we going to make things work when we see the unemployment numbers plunge every week after week, we see unemployment numbers go, you know, increase. And, and the well, and this is the thing that's for us. And this is the most disgusting part of it, you know, is now you've got all these epidemiologists and health officials, the former chair of the CDC, right, the, the, uh, the, right, the, the IHME, uh, you know, and all of them coming out saying, well, racism is a public issue. Racism is a public health issue, right? So this is really important. And yes, the pandemic and the, and the virus is bad, but so is racism. And, you know, okay, well, what about losing your livelihood? What about having to stand in line at a, at a food bank? What about losing your home? How are those not public health issues if racism is the public health issue? Right. You know, then they say, well, you might lose your home, you might lose your job, but at least you won't lose your life. So it's, it's life and death. You'd rather lose your job than your life, wouldn't you? But suddenly they flip and now it's okay to go and protest for racism. So if they are consistent and if they really believe that this virus is really, really deadly, then what they are saying to you and I is that it is okay to go and risk our lives to protest racism, that if you and I die, it was worth it. Are you kidding me? Right. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's, and I think that's, that's, that's political. The that's the question that's left in a lot of our fellow conservative compatriots mind is how is it that I had, you know, uh, uh, fire rained on me for going out and wanting to preserve my job right. so that I can put food on the table for my for family. For my kids, right. But it's okay for me to go outside now if I'm going to hold up a Black Lives Matter sign and walk across, you know, the street. Right. Uh, Something that has nothing racism. to do with your livelihood or your children's livelihood. You know, I mean, uh, and it's you think like this, the, this sowed more division amongst us, uh, the, these doctors and liberals coming out and flipping on a dime. Yes. And absolutely. look, I, I don't want to say that, you know, I don't take the virus seriously. I, I do. I think what we're all upset about is the, the flipping on, a you know, overnight to, to, to backing something like this and having lost all of these jobs. And I bet you anything they're going to come out, the liberals, and feign concern over the unemployment numbers because it's against Trump. And it almost seems calculated and planned that you wanted to create such a, you know, a a disparity amongst people so that later on you can capitalize on it. It does definitely feel like just another, you know, another, uh, you know, like Russiagate or impeachment scandal. And now it's the COVID scandal and it all, it feels, you know, even though I do believe that, um, I do think that the virus, that this new coronavirus was deadlier than the flu for sure. But I don't think it was so deadly that we needed to lock down. I don't, I don't agree that it was 
that the deadliness levels were uh, to the point where we all needed to shelter in place. I think it was obvious that we needed to protect the most vulnerable in our society, that we needed to do what we could for those in the nursing homes because those are the majority of the deaths. Um, But these were people that were, you know, not to sound heartless by any means, but these were people who were already expected by their family members to pass away this year. And I say this as somebody who recently went through this, very intimately recently went through a death in my family at the end of February, somebody that I cared for, somebody that I worked hard to get him out of the facilities where he probably would have ended up catching COVID and, you know, potentially uh, where he would have been a high risk person and he, and he definitely would have passed away. Mm-hmm. He was somebody we expected in my family to pass away. Um, had we waited, you know, had he waited, had he been able to hold on for another month I would not be surprised if they would have labeled him a COVID death, right? If they would have said, well, he caught COVID, so therefore he's a COVID death. But I'm telling you, as a family, we were expecting his passing. Um, Anything at that point would have taken him, you know, anything, common cold. Yeah, so I I do want to bring up kind of the, the, you know, the transition that ended up happening. So we went from being shut down to, you know, this obvious murder happening uh, by a police officer, something we've been dealing for a long, long time. Um, when, when, when the Minneapolis riots uh, happened, I think it re- to me personally, it really deterred. It really kind of uh, deterred the conversation from, you know, getting this justice and focusing in on police reform to, again, the political, you know, circus show, which is, oh, well, I've got to be on the police side now and contribute to the hypocrisy as someone who was fighting for civil liberties as a conservative to open the economy and protest. Now I have to be blue lives matter and, you know, wave my blue line flag. And on the other side, you had leftists who were all about, Oh, well now I'm going to ignore the social distancing. I'm going to ignore all of this. Yeah. Everybody and, became a hypocrite. And, and yeah, everybody kind of became a hypocrite, <laughs> which was right. amazing to watch yeah. in, in such a short span. But I think that well, was and all these conservatives the that were out there and they were protesting, saying this lockdown is unconstitutional. It's against my freedoms. It's, you know, and I was on board with that. I was like, yeah, you know, I agree with you. And then they turn around and they say during these protests, they say, bring in martial go law. Inside, yeah, go, you inside, know, go, go, go home and bring in the um, military and let's right. go ahead and I- implement martial law. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, OK, hypocrite. Right. And right, same thing exactly. for the left that said, oh, shelter in place, you're going to kill people. How dare you? Nothing's more important than life and death. And then suddenly they go out there and say, no, OK, but we need police reform. And that's more important than life and death. And my problem became with the left. My problem became that the rioting and the looting does not help your situation. Don't try to martyr them. Don't try to say, well, you see, if you just expand it out in an intellectual way and we have this long hundred year discussion of like how you know, the elites took the money and they were the first looters and, you know, you scale it all the way down to now and you see how that's justified. I understand that conversation. I think, I don't think it contributes much to try to convince the American population about it because as we saw in the polling, yes, they were for, they were a majority of them were okay with them burning down that Minneapolis precinct. And, and then a majority of them were okay bringing in the military. And even Kyle Kalinske did a segment where he's like scratching his head. Oh, I wonder why. Oh, I, I don't understand this. It's pretty simple. You know, people are okay with you peacefully protesting and they understand where the grief comes from. But they are not for just r- outright anarchy and rioting and looting. Because you know who gets hurt? Bystanders. Right. People who right. are 
live in those communities who were oppressed by the police who had seen all of this but now they're in the way so you have people who die and and the police you know they they look bad so they have to get this under control so in that kind of you know scramble to get things under control they they get angry and then they they push back against the protesters and that it's just a vicious cycle of hate and anger and frustration all boiling over in a small place um what, what yeah, is I mean, your take it, on the writing because i know you've you've been in front of this right i mean it just kind of what it showed was <laughs> Uh, gosh, the riots kind of showed what everybody was talking about. It was on both sides. It was, you know, you, you see the police out there spraying rubber bullets and tear gas at, at peaceful protesters. And you sit there and say, see, this is what people are talking about. You people are hyper militarized. You're overly aggressive and you're using measures that are absolutely uncalled for against people that do not deserve it. Like you people are a problem your training is bad. We need to change this, right? So that was obvious when we saw all the police brutality against the peaceful protesters. At the same time, we see all these looters and rioters, and there were people killed that I don't know why it wasn't ever covered in the news. I, I believe there were about five people that were killed uh, yeah. by rioters and looters. And there was one guy that was killed by the police, and then there were several others that were killed by the, the rioters. And uh, that goes to show that we kind of need police, right? So we can't just say, okay, get rid of the police. We don't need police forces anymore. And police are all bad. They're not bad when you're the one being beat up, when you're the one whose life is at risk and they come and they break that up to save your life. Suddenly the police are your heroes. So I think those people, even those people who were peacefully protesting and like you had bystanders, like try to accost them or go after them, call the police, call the police. And it's like, oh. There's, so it just that. went to show that both sides, you know, it kind of highlighted what both sides are talking about and that both sides are correct. Um, we do need police, of course, because there are violent, dangerous people in the world out there. And we also need the police to stop acting like they're at war with civilians. So, you know, there's got to be this bigger conversation and this bigger fix. But mm. creating enemies and saying it's either black lives or blue lives to me is I mean, it, we're not going anywhere productive with that conversation. Well, the, the what I saw from the left, just to kind of give their perspective and push back, is they said, well, you know, the, um, uh, property shouldn't matter more than lives, like civil, civil people's right. rights. And oftentimes I think the government, in combination with corporations and people who do own a majority of the private property in this country, uh, have made it throughout decades of, you know, legislative pressures, uh, a priority. They've made their financial assets, their uh, real estate, all of that private property uh, oftentimes supersedes civil rights. So if it's a if it's a battle between, you know, uh, people's civil rights and this big corporation conglomerates property, whether it be in the form of money, stocks or what have you, the government and the police and the military, they're going to protect that. Right. And I think that that's the big problem. But then the left kind of goes crazy with me and they don't understand the battle that they say defund the police and then they don't define it. So their PR and their marketing is terrible, even though right. that I, I'm more empathetic to that. And I take that position sometimes and, and I can see where they're coming from. I, I scratch my the head. The message say, is terrible. Your messaging is terrible. You don't right. understand how to do it. Take a page from the right wing. I know you're going to say it's compromising my morals high ground and I'll never do that. And and all of this, but my God, do you want to win? Do you want to see your 
policies in? Do you want to see progress go towards your side or don't you? Do you just want to read right. books for 100 years and try to convince people of what, you know, Lenin said or what this person said? And that that's oftentimes how I see it, you know, happen is that they just they, they don't get it. They just don't. They should be saying it. restructure the police rather right. than defund restructure, um, right. you know, something or retrain. That would be a good one to retrain the police. Right? Yeah. And I think you could you could be you could say, hey, I'm against the rioters and looters while still maintaining a position of, uh, you know, allying yourself with peaceful protests and wanting to see the military be, you know, uh, defunded in the sense of like, you know, stop, stop giving militarized equipment to police forces right uh, you see countries in in europe they don't look like that you see countries in the nordic region they don't look like that so i think right. you can make that point but you have to tell people look at this is where it ha you know this is the ties it's the um uh incarceration industrial complex that's connected to the police yep. the unions uh you know a lot of people don't even know about napo the national association for police organizations who lobby for these contracts with Raytheon, with all these militarized yep. companies and corporations to produce that. Well, in order to get, get their, them paid, you have to prove to your local houses and everything like that. Why do you need the money? Convince me why you need the money. Oh, you see, uh, we made all these laws uh, that criminalize X, Y, and Z. So now things are more criminalized. Things are more, you know, uh, you can't do this. You can't do that. Why? Because it's by design. Police want... Uh, to make things more criminalized so they can justify their budget increases every year. Yeah, but, it's definitely, you know, we definitely need to have more conversations about the police, but certainly the slogan defund the police is a really terrible slogan. Right. Um, because yeah. it doesn't get the message across at all for what, and not only that, but you know, there are some people when you have a rational conversation with them about defund the police, they make really good points and they don't, and, and then you listen to them and you hear, they don't really mean defund the police. But other people that are following them do think it means defund the police and disband the police and get rid of the police because there's people out there that just don't, you know, they're not thinking too deep and they're just following along and they're saying, yeah, get rid of the police. Sounds good to me. You know. So an another aspect I wanted to ask you about is, do you think that this George Floyd protesting Black Lives Matter hasn't been co-opted because, you know, corporations seem to be very friendly to this, very odd considering they're the ones that hold all the power property um politicians liberals they're taking a knee in their wakanda outfits they seem to be all for this so has has there been co-opting and, and what do you think the the you know what do you think they're they're after what do you think that their their motives are i think that it is a deflection against the incredible wealth heist that has just happened in front of our faces we have just undergone the largest wealth heist in the history, I believe, of this country, of shutting the government, forcing people to lose their jobs, forcing businesses to close down, and then turning around and saying, what's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Uh, why can't you make it work? Well, if your business failed, then you must have had a crappy business, even though I was the government and forced you to shut your business down. Um, so we saw a huge wealth heist where the rich who had extra resources got to buy up stuff for dirt cheap, and they're right now rubbing their hands together. They can't wait for people to foreclose on their homes. They can't wait to be able to buy up those houses for dirt cheap that they can turn into rentals and make even more money off of. So and those who have resources- Black Lives Matter won't matter then, huh? It won't matter. And that, the thing <laughs> is, is what they've done is they've said, 
because to me, it was very obvious that the real reason why everybody was taking to the streets was really more out of frustration of being cooped up inside. I'm not taking away from the Black Lives Matter movement at all. I do think it absolutely, you know, this has clearly been a conversation and a movement that has been growing massively in this country um, from Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. And, you know, we've been having this this uh, outrage and uh, uprising for quite a while. So, of course, I believe it would only get stronger and stronger. But to the level that it went to, and with all of the looting and the rioting that went along with it, to me showcased more of a frustration from the people just in general that mm -hmm. the government doesn't care about our lives at all. It's not just about black lives. It's they don't care about our lives. They gave us 1200 bucks after they shoved everybody out of a job. Mm -hmm. And now they're saying we can't wait to steal your homes. I mean, even here in Los Angeles, where we're a liberal haven, right? Our government actively set on a phone call all these people went in and listened to this phone call conference, the city council, and the city council in Los Angeles said, well, we're going to take that government relief money. And what we're going to do is there's going to be a lot of properties that are distressed on the market. We're going to buy them up. So rather than these people phoning in to hear how the government was going to save their homes, what they heard instead was that the government was waiting for them to foreclose so they could take their homes for cheap. That's that is our liberal oasis here in Los Angeles wanting to do that to people. So, yeah. of course, the leaders, I think, are just saying, well, you know what, obviously, there's because of the looting and the rioting and people that are, they they don't have any money, they've just, they've lost their jobs, they've never seen it in sight. And now they're bashing in windows to take things that they never would be able to afford in their lives. You know, they've never been able to afford it, and they never will after this. And so they had an opportunity, and they took it. And that was showcasing to me more of the frustration of the economic problems in this country more than it was the police brutality problem, even though that is also a layered problem on top of it, of course. So and they, and I believe a lot of them, those two problems go hand in hand. Um, you know, that's you know, we an know excellent poor point. I, I never actually thought of it that way. You, you just put it into a really good perspective because and I think that's what a lot of like frustrated leftists, you know, who are to the left of me. I think we're trying to tell me and, and you just articulated it very well, which is it might be self selfish of them to go in and loot. But the you know, the the argument that they were trying to make is that they're trying to also preserve something right like they know that they can resell this on the black market. It's money. They're, they're getting all this stuff because the the you know, the pandemic ruined us just like 2008 did. And the politicians never came to our rescue. They didn't give us 80% of our wages throughout right. the three months. They didn't do anything. And so it put them in a bad position. And yeah, a lot of them are going to lose their homes. So it's all self-preservation. That's excellent. Yeah, that's uh, what it is at this point. So, you know, and by the way, they didn't come, they didn't go to their own neighborhoods and destroy their own neighborhoods like back in the 92 riots. Um, they came to my neighborhood and they were here. We had in my apartment complex where I live, you know, we had one night LAPD swarming above us, three choppers ahead. It turned out that a group of looters, armed looters, uh, got into a getaway car and drove into my apartment complex and parked only 10 feet away from my car, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, then the, and then a couple of nights later, we had another group of looters attempt to break into our apartment complex management where all the packages are for all of our, you know, where they receive all of the packages. And so... You know, they've come to my neighborhood. This is what they what they're doing is they they purposefully and L.A. Times covered this. They purposefully stayed out of the poorer neighborhoods and they went into the west side and into the kind of richer neighborhoods 
where, you know, Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, downtown, Santa Monica, Venice, you know, they went into those areas and that's where they did the destruction and the looting. And, um, you know, well, to me, it was like, I, I wasn't making an excuse for it because I, you know, but I also understand it. Right. You understand it, but you know, it doesn't win hearts and minds. Like it doesn't contribute to the right, not towards the goals. Black Lives Matter movement when, you know, and also this whole defund the police idea, right? When right. you've got video after video of all these people that are breaking into shops and looting and stealing and, and uh, re, you know, I mean, it was destruction. And then I would hear people say, well, that was only just a s isolated small incidents. No, it was not. I'm living in the middle of it. I'm telling you, they destroyed Santa Monica. It's, you know you, you, I mean, it wasn't know, isolated. Hundreds of people, thousands of people had to do this. Yeah. And you know what's uh, another thing that I don't hear a lot of people talking about? The impact this has on the working class, the people who deliver DoorDash, the people who you know do Uber rides. When you bring that kind of riding and looting, of course, it's going to bring down the force of the police and enforcement, which is going to create what? Curfews. Curfews till 7 o'clock. That, that cuts into the wages of the people who are already been beaten by this pandemic even yeah. more because now they have to be home by eight o'clock. And so their hours get cut by maybe 12 hours or 20 hours a week. And they're wondering, Oh my God, now it's worse. So I think, uh, what, what happens with them too, is they become less empathetic to what you're doing. If it's all about just, you know, glorifying yeah. riots and looting. Well, and that to me was the biggest problem, you know, here in the, you know, on the West side of LA where people have it pretty good. I mean, Granted, a lot of my neighbors lost their jobs. A lot of my neighbors are moving out. A lot of my neighbors are in really hard times right now. They lost their jobs and they didn't qualify for the $1,200 check. They got nothing because their income was a little too high, which in LA you have to have. Um, wow. You you know you can't make $75,000 here in LA and rent a one bedroom on the west side. You just can't. You need to make a hundred grand. And there's you know so the, you know the, a lot of my neighbors fell on hard times. So it wasn't like the rich areas just didn't get hit. But I will say the thing that frustrated me the most about the rioting and the looting was that all of these liberals who are like latte sipping liberals who can stay at home and work and they're not feeling the pain and they're the ones that were screaming, stay home, stay home. You know, your job is not worth your lively, you know, your life and not understanding that for many people, it's one and the same. You know, they're they're living very privileged lives, being able to work from home because they work online or whatever it might be. And those very same people didn't seem to understand they didn't connect the dots that their neighborhood was being looted and it and when they saw the looting and the rioting they just said well they're mad because the black lives matter you know that's why they're mad right. and it was like no you rich person they're <laughs> mad because they lost their jobs they don't have any livelihood and they and they see you that you're not stressing out you're drinking your lattes. You're sitting at home in front of your computer still making a living. Maybe you got cut a little bit, but you're you're still able to put food on the table. And they come and they raid your neighborhood because they say, hey, rich person, you're going to be fine. I'm not, but you are. And right. they didn't connect that dot at all. They were just like, well, no, Black Lives Matter. You know, America's finally had it with the police. And it's like, right. oh, okay, no, maybe rich people and this whole disparity, the income disparity had a major role in what was in, in this uprising. And it was just not even discussed on the news at all. Nobody connected those dots. No, it was it was never, yeah. And I think that, that explains to the corporation backing all of this and all these big like Amazon, uh, the, the vice president of Amazon going out there in the walking, you know, with the protesters. It's because it's all, you know, evasion. Like, oh, let's try to, you know, make, let's take control of the narrative, I guess. 
Yeah. And of course, none of the politicians did it either. Instead, they just said, you know, we're going to do some police reform. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And they're not at all addressing the issue, the economic issue that caused the destruction of the country, the actual looting and the robbing. And, you know, my family members, they're small business owners. They're not corporations. They're immigrants to this. They're refugees, actually. They're refugees to this country. And their businesses were destroyed and looted and and a lot of them can't afford like the big insurances you know that that would cover all of this not like big corporations can i do want to move on to kind of the state of the election um if it's okay with you i wanted to kind of address some uh, very generous super chats here i can't pronounce this person's name balakrishna sorry uh sybil edomans says that the deep state is using protests to implement a coup against trump uh i'm not trump fan but uh, hard to dismiss her while, uh, oops, that went away. Oh, while simultaneously wanting police reform. Right. Thank you. <laughs> uh, another one from Marcus saying more attention could be directed at ending Israeli training of major city police departments. That's yeah. very true. Right. We and, should be having the, you know, ironically, the Germans should come and train our police departments because they don't carry guns and they're, or, or at least the British definitely don't. We should have the British come and train right. our police force. Yeah, they carry like batons or something. So, right, and they know how to. Well, that's why we have disarm. SWAT. That's my whole thing is like we have specialized units to respond to like crazy situations. I don't know why the regular patrolmen have to, you know, be equipped with all of this craziness. But and right now, what's going on here in LA, literally down the street from me, is there's a woman. She's a they said a known gang member. She has a knife and she went and slashed a few people. And now they've got her barricaded and they're like attempting to disarm her. I will say the few times I've seen the LAPD, um, I've seen them twice in action up front and very personal. Mm -hmm. And I thought they did an excellent job of of managing the situation without without hurting the person. Because Uh, a lot of it's in their books. You know, a lot of the the, the tactics and stuff, it's already on the books. It's just sometimes there are, you know police departments that grossly ignore that and just kind of run them up. Yeah, but I've seen Um, up close and personal because I live in Venice where things get really crazy. mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I saw right in front and I even had to actually give a statement to the police department where I saw it was early in the morning and some guy had been breaking into cars and he was running from the cops and one cop was on foot and the other one was following him in the patrol car and the streets were totally silent and dead because nobody was out. It was like five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday or Sunday. Mm. And this guy was running and I heard the police shouting, stop, stop, you know, stop. And I look out my window to see what's going on. And I see the cop going down the road and the guy running. And the cop finally ends up tasing the guy. And when he tased the guy, he runs up to the guy and I could hear everything. He runs up to the guy and he says, man, why did you make me do that? Are you all right? And then he he tells his partner, get an ambulance out here. He starts checking the guy's vitals. He was more concerned about the man's health and in wellness than he was about, you know, cuff him. This guy's a bad guy. Like that wasn't what I overheard at all. This cop was genuinely concerned about the man's health. He was like, why did you make me do that? Why did you make me do that, man? You should have stopped. You should have stopped. You know, we're going to get you help. Don't worry. We're, you know, we're getting an ambulance out here. Wish you would have stopped. You should have stopped. Yeah. And I wish that, you know, more of what we saw was situations like that. Unfortunately, sometimes we do get the worst of things, right? We always kind of, I mean, that's that's partly to the journalism in media. It's right. like chasing that almighty dollar. Uh, I want to talk about the election. I do want to acknowledge H. Rivera. Thank you so much for the generous donation, talking about us having a great, provocative, sensible conversation. We do appreciate it. So this has obviously sparked, you know, a lot of changes in the current 
election 2020. I don't know if people are aware of this, but Biden, he did clinch the nomination. And, uh, you know, there's been polling that shows him up eight points. Uh, there's polling showing him up up to 14 points. And I did a lot of research, looked at a different pollings, and it does seem to be kind of the average. Uh, you know, famous commentators like Jesse Ventura, Crystal Ball of the Hill, the Rising, Sagar and Jetty, all of them are starting to kind of not pivot, but talk more generously about Biden's chances. I think, Kim, you even talked about that. Kyle has put out tweets about it. You know, Trump really kind of losing his opportunity here, what could have been a slam dunk. Now he seems a little paranoid with, you know, lawsuits being filed over this polling and him losing uh, uh, points in places like Wisconsin, places where he shouldn't be losing points. Uh, can you give us your thoughts just kind of on this uh, polling situation and what's developed? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been one of the first to say this out of the, the left, but I, I've been saying for a while, I think Biden wins. Um, to me, the writing's on the wall that somehow he pulls it off. I just think there's more hatred towards Trump then there is love for Biden. I think people are very apathetic to Biden, but I think there's more hatred to Trump. So those people that are apathetic to Biden will show up to the polls, will show up just to vote against Trump. Uh, and I think that there's also a lot of apathy for Trump on the right. They don't really love him. They don't hate him. They're just kind of apathetic. They might not show up. They think he's got it in the bag. And I think that's there. I think Trump will suffer the same fate Hillary Clinton suffered when they just got lazy and and the, even the voters they just felt like yeah she's gonna win you know Trump's not gonna beat her so I don't even I don't need to go vote they didn't feel the urgency right right so and I think right now Trump has made a lot of mistakes the gassing of the protesters to get the photo op in front of the church the wanting to usher in martial law I mean I think he really he really missed opportunities during this pandemic that could have solidified him I mean had he said we need Medicare for all because this is, you know, he was kind of going down that path for a minute. Um, had he said we need to give more money and help the American people and the American businesses out, rather than focusing on uh, when the protest started, rather than saying, oh, you know, we need to usher in, um, you know, the military and we need to gas all these peaceful protesters and, you know, the, we're going to shoot you if once the riot starts, the shooting starts, you know. Yeah. That's where he made, I think, I, I think those were deadly mistakes for him. I don't Absolutely. think he recovers. I think I agree uh, on pretty much everything you said. The one thing I will say is that speaking to conservative friends, people even on the alt-right, you know, I live in Colorado, so <laughs> you get some of those friends in your circles. They were telling <laughs> me that, you know, Trump didn't respond quick enough. That was one of the criticisms from the right on Trump is that they were upset that Trump didn't, uh, you know, respond quick enough to Minneapolis and what was going on there. And look, let's face it, the, the partisanship contributes to this. You know, a governor is going to allow chaos to happen. Why? Because it hurts Trump. Anything to get rid of Trump. So even I think if Trump would have came out and been more responsive and said, hey, let's work together. What's going on? You know, this this, this is escalating too quickly. The conversation is running away in all kinds of directions. Let's focus this. I guarantee you that Democratic governors, Democratic senators, they would not be willing to sit down with him and, and have those talks because it benefits them. Uh, immensely to have Trump kind of wail in the wind or, or drown himself in this, yeah. this craziness that, you know, a lot of these democratic cities run cities, run states are going up in flames because at the end of the day, the, you know, the buck stops with the president, uh, no matter, you know, how much all these other elements may contribute to it. I think, 
he still kind of bears that burden, unfortunately. And I and, and I think that you're right on on the fact that he just he he went too far with the author, authoritarian talk too much mm-hmm. to the point where some right wingers and commentators were also saying like, kind of missed your opportunity here. And it's so hilarious to me because you know the the left missed their opportunity to stop biting in the, in the primaries. I think they 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 were asking too much of Bernie, and I got a lot of backlash for for saying this. Is that they didn't allow Bernie to make uh, inroads with some of the liberal, you know, Trump derangement syndrome folks. And anytime he would make some kind of appeal to the center, boom, you know, they would pounce on 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 Bernie, or they would pounce on Yang or Tulsi, and you know, that I think that that was a big mistake, but. What, what what do you make of Biden? Is he just kind of falling ass backwards into these opportunities or? Yeah, I mean, they, look, they, they knew that was their guy from the beginning and they made it happen. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all that they would, you know, when you look at it, Biden, Bernie was winning the areas of the country that we actually need to win, that we actually could swing. Um, Biden was winning the South. I mean, who cares about the South? I mean, you know, I, it's not like I don't care about the South, but come on, they don't vote blue ever in the general election. It doesn't go blue. It always goes red. So for Biden to win over the South, to me, is like, this has been the problem with our politics from the beginning is 